Fill to capacity. Crazy good stories and timely topics. Podcast for people too stubborn to quit and too creative not to make a difference. Inspiring, irreverent, and informative. Stay tuned. I'm Pat Benincasa, and welcome to Fill to Capacity. Today's episode, From Toxic to Tranquil, Wanting Work-Life Balance. My guest is Rabbi Avi Olitsky. Rabbi Olitsky is an author and speaker. He is the former senior rabbi of Bethel Synagogue in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. He is recognized for his leadership and contributions to the Jewish community. Rabbi Olitsky is president of the Olitsky Consulting Group, a consulting firm that provides strategic planning, leadership development, and organizational change to nonprofit groups, foundations, churches, and synagogues. The firm's focus is on helping its clients achieve their goals and create lasting impact in their communities. Welcome, Rabbi Olitsky. It's so nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. Now, before we jump into toxic work environments and work-life balance, I'm curious about your journey as a rabbi and as a consultant for the Olitsky Consulting Group. How did that come about? Sure. Thanks for asking, Pat. I know it's not the most traditional of journeys. (laughs) I became a rabbi because I felt it was the last dying profession of the Renaissance man, if you will. And you'll forgive the gender insensitivity of the expression, but you, you understand. And I really wanted to do all of these different things and really leave the world in a better place than I found it. And so after I began in the pulpit about 15, 20 years ago, I thought I would do this for a couple of years, but I really fell in love with congregational work, not only because I found it impactful directly working with people, but my congregation, my my second congregation, that is, really gave me an opportunity to have a national and an international platform to work locally and broadly regionally here in Minnesota in the upper Midwest and exposed me to opportunities within the business development world, within the nonprofit sector, beyond the walls of the synagogue. And after not reflecting on a feeling of reaching a ceiling within in the institution, but more having a, a deep awareness that I wanted my reach to match my capacity, And having spent nearly 15 years in that pulpit, I decided to give my notice, which the rabbinical assembly, my union required me to give 12 months notice. And over that that year, I came to the realization that the best use of my strengths and energies was not to work with one institution or organization, Mm -hmm. but to be able to find opportunities to work with a diversity of organizations and clients. And that led to launching the Olitsky Consulting Group. So I have to ask, Rabbi, has your reach 
matched or exceeded your capacity? Uh, no, I'm still on that track. And interestingly enough, because I launched the firm with the concept of what it means to bring in an outside expert, or mm. that's that's the whole underpinning of consultancy, the majority of my clients in the infancy of my firm have been outside of Minnesota. And only in the past six to 12 months have I been able to do far more robust work here in mm -hmm. Minnesota, because that's what it means to kind of get the ground solid and structured as opposed to just kind of launch and deploy. Well, that brings me, speaking of Minnesota, you wrote an opinion piece for the MinPost, and the title was A Simple Fix for a Toxic Work Environment. You talked about the pandemic, quote, challenged work-life balance more than ever before. And then you went on to say, quote, these same employees became newly aware of a toxicity in their workplace they either previously ignored or assumed was standard. So, Rabbi, what are the characteristics of a toxic workplace? That's such a large question, yeah. Pat. I, I think it really depends on the environment. It's less the characteristics of a toxic workplace and more how do you recognize toxicity. And mm. I know that that's a, that's a nuanced difference, but toxicity is in the eye of the beholder, if you will. If you are showing up to work and when you wake up in the morning, you have stomach pains. If you get to work and it's not about cutthroat competition, but about people just trying to step on each other yeah. or people wielding power, not for progress, but for personal gain. Look, we live in a capitalist society. Mm -hmm. Progress based on financial success is certainly a barometer for that success in this society, yes. right? It's about independence. It's about growth. It's about amassing wealth. That's not all it's about, but that's part of it. So it's understandable that people want to seek a positive growth or a vertical trajectory. However, when superiors use their seats of authority to prey on their subordinates, mm -hmm. and I don't mean that in a sexual way or a harassment way, but simply as a power mongering or a fear mongering way, that's what leads to toxicity. Now, that's a good way to put it. Dr. Amy Sullivan of the Cleveland Clinic, when she talks about how to figure out if you're in a toxic work environment, she asks the question, does my workplace align with my value system, core values, my beliefs, my behavior systems? And I think in a sense, you're saying the same thing. I mean, if you're, you're taking on this stress, being asked or treated in a way that does not align to your dignity as a human being, there's a real rub against who you are. That, that's right. Uh, I remember when I was thinking about toxicity, either in places that I've worked or, or with clients I've worked, you know, we've heard a lot about people quiet quitting. That's yeah. the next iteration. The toxic work environment, there really is no singular definition. When you feel disrespected or bullied or overworked or negatively stressed, that's really what's happening. Yes, I think yes. There is room for positive stress. In fact, so yeah. many people have traded toxic stress for positive stress. 
And that's the what I believe is the biggest revelation of this post-pandemic era. Now, will you speak more about the positive stress? That's fascinating. Sure. I think that if we think about stress on the human body, there's a difference between thinking through different sports analogies. Okay. So let's talk about ice hockey. I'm a big ice hockey fan. If you have skates that don't fit you, by the end of the second or third period, you will have such pain in your ankles and feet, and that's from that repeated stress of banging the ice while you skate. However, by the end of the third period, if your skates do fit you in, they're sharpened correctly and everything is good, the stress put on your legs from the constant strides and the shifts will actually drive your adrenaline to work harder and better by the end of the game. We talk about trying to find our legs. How soon can we get our legs under us? Yes. And I think in some work environments, certain deadlines, accountability charts, benchmarks or milestones, those are the positive stress, right? You've got this huge initiative or event or deadline coming up and you want to work to exceed. That's the positive stress. The negative stress, and one of the things that I highlighted could be as simple as it's Friday afternoon, you get an email, a very terse email from a colleague, a superior, says, listen, I'd like to meet with you at 9 a.m. Monday morning. No context, nothing. You spend the entire weekend freaking out over it, stressing. That's that negative stress. Why? Well, there's a chance it could be a real negative meeting, or it could have simply just been, hey, I just want to check in. Well, where does that come from? That's not because of that email. It's because of the relationships within the office. It's because of everything that led up into the moment, the way that you're treated. And that eats at you and it doesn't, it enervates instead of energizes. The positive stress energizes, the negative stress enervates. Great way to put that. So the pandemic created a space for employees to reevaluate their priorities. And that led to the great, resignation. And that is the number of employees who left their jobs in 2022, 50.5 million people quit their jobs. And that's according to the federal jobs report. In this huge workplace migration, what are employees looking for that they leave this job? What are they searching for? I can't speak for everyone. I'd I'd be a liar if I did. Um, I can speak for those with whom I've worked and for those for whom I've worked. I think that people are no longer committed to unsustainable work hours. The idea of working until a project is done is respectable, appreciated, and part of drive. But the idea of working till two o'clock or three o'clock in the morning in advance of the seven or 8 a.m. meeting is no longer sustainable and should no longer be tolerated. I think that people are looking for compassion toward mental health Mm. and physical health. There was a huge boom in office walking treadmills during the pandemic. All of a sudden, people were going for runs or walks while they were on calls. And then once they got back into the office, they saw their own physical health diminish again. And they want that idea of support for mental and physical health. Now, 
it's interesting that you brought up mental health aspects. NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, just recently posted on Instagram a couple of days ago, in fact, managers impact our mental health more than doctors or therapists. One study said, quote, more than 80% of employees would rather have a good mental health than a high-paying job. Does that reinforce what you're talking about? Uh, I, I think so. There are still people who certainly drive for the dollar irrespective oh. of the pain. But when either antagonistic or bullying behavior is embedded intrinsic and baked into the culture of the organization doesn't matter how rich you're going to become yeah it's going to kill you absolutely and and at the end of the day it is the challenge of the dysfunction of those environments i'll answer the question that you didn't ask yet pat and that is i do a lot of work currently my client two-thirds of my clients are nonprofits and or in the religious space uh, I'm doing a lot of work with membership associations as of late, 501c6s. Mm-hmm. About a third of my clients are for-profit. In my experience, a lot of the toxicity in these nonprofits and a lot of the dysfunction in these nonprofits is top-down, but not necessarily from the staff. It's more from the volunteer boards. And what oh. ends up happening is... When there is a different type of power grab or sense of authority from a volunteer board, that is sometimes imposed upon staff in a way that creates a deus ex machina, if you will, feeling of toxicity within the workplace. And so what ends up happening is you have this challenge of a parallel power structure where you have the staff within the nonprofit, where they have their organizational chart. And then you have the volunteer leadership where they have an organizational chart. And then there ends up becoming competing priorities, competing reporting structures, and a wielding of power just in a bullying and an emotional abuse state. You know, listening to you, it's almost like reading Shakespeare talking about a medieval monarchy and all the crisscross agendas that work to undermine the running of a a government. And so a business sounds like the same thing. You've got conflicting groups with different agendas. That's right. In in the for-profit world, companies that are not mission-driven but are numbers-driven, right? Our goal is to make money. Our goal is to sell. Our goal is to succeed then sometimes you have those that say, how can we all work together so that we all do better together? And then other times you have those who say, how can I get you to work for me so I could do better? The latter is what yields the toxic workplace. In the nonprofit sector, the challenge you really have is many operate from a scarcity mindset as opposed to an abundance mindset. This is a concept that my good friend Tamara Rebic has shared with me. And this idea of scarcity mindset is one that we back into. And that scarcity mindset is not only about assets or capacity, 
it's also about leadership. And so we sometimes put the wrong people in those leadership places, which lead to that toxicity. Because you have someone who says, you know, I, I haven't accomplished much in life, but if I could be a leader here, well, now I'm going to use this for every ounce of my power and I'm going to use it wrong. Or I'm going to put my best friends in leadership seats because I know that we could have the echo chamber and just work within a common goal, even though if it's not the right goal. And there's just so many pockets of toxicity that come from this. It also, when you mention uh, scarcity, it immediately brings up us, them. It creates that pits people. Scarcity always seems to pit people. Look at current culture. I mean, politics right now, that us, them dynamic is about scarcity. If, if you get this, I won't have it. And, and you're right, because what ends up happening in that us-them culture is that people get rewarded for harmful or unethical or yep. nasty behavior, right? It, it ends yep. up becoming blame culture. Yes. And when, when blame culture is the underpinning of the workplace, you can never rid it of the toxicity. Well, then that brings me, it's a natural segue to this different aspect I'd like to talk about. It's really difficult for an employee to report or get relief from an abusive, bullying, sexually inappropriate manager. New York Times had an article a couple weeks ago, quote, you're the problem. When they spoke up about misconduct, they were offered mental health services. The point of the article was that some companies use HR or employee assistance programs to sidetrack employee complaints about the manager. So in this post-COVID workplace where companies want to entice new hires, do you think we'll see any kind of change in how corporations or companies respond to bad manager complaints? I would hope so. Um, without speaking to the, the full intricacies of that article and that report, one of the things that I have been advising all of my clients on is if they don't have an HR protocol or HR infrastructure in place, they need yep. to do it yesterday. And second to that, it there needs to be some sort of external airing of grievance process. Because what ends up happening, especially in the nonprofit sector, is you have one or two people you could go to, and they're usually your superior. So if if I can't go to my superior because that's where I'm finding the bullying or the abuse, and then I go to the board president, and then I get chided for circumventing the process or going out of the structure, what am I supposed to do? So what I do want to say is when a company or organization directs its employees to go to outside HR and they are offered different mental health or other remediation processes, I don't think that that's burying the issue or protecting the manager. I do think that there's a way to do that so that there's accountability that is part of that process. And that's Uh, what you're talking about is the accountability factor here. That's right. 
you know, when you look at this, how much manipulation happens? How much lack of trust happens? How high are our stress levels that lead to infighting and different types of discrimination that that just become the norm? I would love to see, and I'll pivot with you for a moment, Pat. Please. I'd love to see, for example, no longer the conversation around PTO, paid time off. I believe that if you have a healthy work environment, you really don't have to mandate or limit time off. People will want to get the work done. And when they are sick or they want to take proper vacation, they will. And if they are abusing that, then they're not the proper employee. But when we live in a world where I don't know if I could actually find the mental health break that I need because I have to get this done, or really yeah. I, 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 I should call in sick or I shouldn't do this, but I can't because I'm being modeled inappropriately because my superior is working when she's sick or they're answering the phone and responding to emails at 1.30 in the morning yeah. or all these different types of behaviors that, that challenge the workplace incorrectly. But in this country, the corporate model is really about work when you're sick, don't ask for vacation. And yet in 2017, the French passed a law that employers could not contact their employees after work hours. It seems that Europe has a little bit different mindset than we do over here. It's not good to work when you're sick. You know, mental health, family care is so critical. Fill to Capacity is brought to you by one of the most celebrated persons in history, Joan of Arc. How about carrying a bit of Joan's courage with you all the time? You can with the Joan of Arc Scroll Medal designed by award-winning artist Pat Benincasa. With loving attention to detail, Joan has banner in hand and is charging off the scroll-shaped metal with the words, Be at my side. This beautiful brass alloy metal is ideal for holiday or special occasion gifts. Don't wait. Capture a bit of history and inspiration today. Visit www.patbenincasa-art.com now, back to the podcast. Yes, uh, 100%. And there are already companies regularly that are starting to offer this unlimited time off. That's great. Right? Netflix, Oracle, LinkedIn. There, there are these companies say, hey, LinkedIn, for example, has an unlimited vacation policy. Zoom. Unlimited vacation policy. Wow. Evernote, unlimited vacation policy. Salesforce, unlimited vacation policy. Right? We could go on. Now, if you hear these companies, Asana, these are the ones, Vimeo, these are the ones that are working in the tech sector and they understand the challenges yeah. and the time of what this looks like. Even Adobe has an unlimited vacation. You work with your superior, your manager, and you figure out how the time works. If you want to take time off right during your deadline, well, then you're not understanding what your responsibilities are. Yeah. But if you want to take time to be with your family because you just had this major accomplishment, because it's been stressful, 
we need the time to decompress. Yes, yes. Well, that brings me to how the pandemic has redefined what's normal in retailing, education, the arts, healthcare, the workplace. Companies were forced to adopt remote work and flexible work arrangements. Now that the pandemic is over, some companies want their employees to come back into the office, come hell or high water, they want those bodies in the seats. Can we really go back to a pre-COVID time of long commutes, late hours in the office? Is that possible? No, I, I don't think it is. But what I do think is a little bit of a hybrid of that. You know, we throw around this word hybrid all the time now, but it's a little bit of a hybrid of that. And what I mean by that is I, I do think that, let me rephrase that sentence. I don't think offices are going away. I don't think okay. in-person work is going away. And I do think that there are a lot of benefits to being in person in the office, if not five days a week, but for multiple times. There are incredible benefits to being able to pop into a colleague's office for a quick question. Mm -hmm. That said, so many of us that have virtual meetings or remote meetings, even when we are in the office, sometimes those meetings take place in our homes. Sometimes those meetings take place in our cars. Sometimes those meetings even take place outside in the parking lot of our kids' sports game. And that's okay. But it also means there is no longer an on-off switch to work time and family time. Yes. Or work time and home time. That's something that COVID blew out into the spotlight. Yes. And it's something that we're starting to embrace in a positive if we embrace that in a positive and recognize that, then that's going to change the workplace even more to the question that you're asking, Pat. You know, I think if there's any good that came out of COVID, because it has changed so much, people were stuck at home. And for the first time, you know, when we're on that treadmill, got to get it to work, you're driving, you got to do work at night. We were all on this collective treadmill. And all of a sudden, for a year and a half, we're in lockdown. People were discovering their homes, their families, their backyards. And it seems to have generated an awareness of priority. This is my home. I love being with my family. Do I need to commute an hour and a half? This shift towards valuing home life and just being able to take a breath and taking it in. That's right. 100%. I'll, I'll give you a good example. So. Part of my transition out of the congregational world and into the consulting world was during the pandemic. And I remember speaking with my eldest daughter, who was really sad that I was stopping to work as a congregational rabbi. And as a 13-year-old, she's now 13, as a 13-year-old, she struggled to understand what consulting is, right, as, as many do, right? <laughs> In part, because as a, as a part of the reason I went into consulting is for 20 years as a rabbi, I was consulting. That's the nature yeah. of rabbinic work. You were consulting on a, a vast number of ideas and concepts with all different types of people. I share this because after about a year, year and a half into this world of consulting, I had a conversation with my daughter just to kind of cycle back and say, hey, what do you think? How are things going? And she said, well, you know, 
you never used to be home for dinner. Oh. And I really love that you're home for dinner every night. And what's interesting about that is even during the pandemic, when I was home, I wasn't home for dinner. Yeah. And it wasn't until this awakening that I had and that others have that, okay, if I'm going to be home for dinner, does that mean that my trade-off is I'm going to do an 8.30 meeting afterwards? Mm -hmm. Or is it my work stops at 5 p.m., full stop? Or do we find a place where we say, well, I'm working in a career that I'm just not home for dinner. And I want to point out that there are plenty of professions and jobs and careers where your shift is from midnight to, right? We, some people yeah. don't, we, we have to be aware that there are all different types of workers and employees. But as we consider what those different sacrifices are, it's okay to make those sacrifices as long as we honor and don't require those sacrifices. Yes, that's a that's a perfect way to say it. I, I just want to segue for a moment. I recently read that the push for people to come back into the office is driven by managers that fear that remote work will do away with their jobs. Will a new post-COVID remote workplace make managers unnecessary, at least in that industrial model of someone, a supervisor walking the floor to make sure that people are working. Will we see a change in that? I think that old model is changing, but it's not because of remote work. If you look at models like EOS or Traction, those talk about solid accountability and organizational charts. They need different types of structure. You need a visionary, you need an implementer, you need an integrator. Mm -hmm. But those are not people who are walking the floor just to make sure people are working. These are not proctors or foremen. Yeah. And so with the exception of the shop floor, really manual labor, I think those roles of the foreman making sure that people are working, those are gone. That said, any of the institutions that want to do away with remote work to make sure that people are working, don't trust their employees. Yes. And that's indicative of a toxic culture. Now, to be clear, if those employees are also gaming the system, then that is indicative of yeah. a toxic culture, right? Yes. Any of those, and I know plenty of people who every so often move the mouse so it appears that they're active in teams or or uh, Slack, or whatever it might be, okay? If you have to do that, that's problematic. Yeah. If you're not being trusted to perform, that's problematic. If you're not performing, it's also problematic, right? It's both sides of, yes. the, both sides of the spectrum. Well, then, what do you say to a company that wants to be competitive in attracting the best employees? What are a few key things they'd have to do? Well, you we talk about remote. Number one, if, if you are limiting yourself to geography, and some roles do yep. have to limit to 
geography. If you're limited to geography, you won't attract the best employees because there might be some people who live in a completely different zip code or area who, who can't yeah. come and yeah. move. In addition, if you're limited to a certain or limiting to a certain time window, well, I need you to work for these hours during, be available during these hours. Sometimes that's a challenge too, depending on the work that needs to get done. But in terms of maximizing the potential of your family, what does it mean to work for the company? What does it mean to offer an exceptional employee experience? What does it mean to provide room for growth and a clear strategy for development and upgrading skills? Mm -hmm. There's so many different elements to make a safe and positive and retention excellent workplace. So as we wind down this conversation, how would you describe work-life balance? Is it really attainable? I think it is when we stop treating it as a binary. Ah. And the reason we treat it as a binary is because we talk about jobs, we talk about job time and lifetime or job time and non-job time. But when we start, when we stop having jobs and we begin having work, when my vocation is also my avocation, that's where you have the proper balance. When I wake up and my soul is nourished because of the work that I am doing, then that feels good and that ends up being good. Now, I don't want to be Pollyannish yeah. and this, you know, look at the world through rose-colored lenses thinking that everyone has to love and will love their job. Sometimes you work because you have to make a living and that's what it is. And I understand that. But there are different types of worlds where people can work, where they can still feel nourished by their employer and by the work that they're doing. Rabbi Olitsky, I want to thank you for the compassionate, clear way that you've really talked about this. I mean, it's, it's humane. It's humane. I, I think, Pat, I appreciate the, the thanks, Pat. I, I, I think that when we start to consider our employees not as cogs in a system, but as members of a team or members of a family, that's when the work-life balance becomes in balance because you're going to honor your family and want to treat your family like family. I've seen that in a number of my clients and a number of my colleagues, but I've also seen the worst come out in people. Yeah. And when you see that worst come out, the toxicity is unending. And that's, that's perhaps the bigger pandemic. Beautifully said. Rabbi Avi, Olitsky, I want to thank you for joining me today on Fill to Capacity. Wow, you're the kind of person, you could just listen to you for hours, but we both don't have that kind of time. So thank you, and thank you listeners. If you've enjoyed Fill to Capacity, please tell your friends and subscribe. 